Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, When he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. 
And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. This is the third week in the season of Epiphany. And Epiphany, if you were here the last two weeks, you may have heard me mention that Epiphany is a season in which we remember how Jesus Christ was made manifest to his people. Uh, We covered for the last two weeks the the baptism of Jesus Christ in two different accounts, looking at John 1 and Matthew 3, and now we are moving to Matthew 4. What Matthew records takes place uh, right after his baptism. And there's a period in this, in this uh, reading, actually, that takes around 47 to 50 days. Because uh, one, of the thing that's, one of the things that's kind of tricky to see, sometimes the gospel writers will say words like immediately, and then it'll say something like, and in those days. And that's their way of telling you a little bit of time has passed. But uh, this, this encounter that Jesus experiences is significant because of what it tells the people of God as to God's covenant faithfulness in sending an Israelite who would keep the law totally. And so today we're going to look at as an element of Jesus Christ's revelation of himself to the people, how God by the spirit was leading Christ to give a testimony to the people that he was the true Israelite. That is, what we see Jesus do in his triumph over the temptation in the wilderness is completing the covenantal failures and redeeming the people of God through his righteous obedience. The Christian faith includes pardon from sin, and that pardon from sin is necessary if sinners are to be united to God in purity. But not only do we need pardon from sin, we also need something that would commend us to God. You see, God is not merely a God who cares if his word is not transgressed. He also demands that his word be performed. And Jesus Christ, in his victory over the devil in the wilderness, performed a righteousness for us. This is an extension of his obedience, the active obedience of Jesus Christ. That's not a doctrine that's new to most of us, but to some of us, we may have never considered that aspect of the gospel. We emphasize the cross, and rightly so, for without the cross, we would have no means to come before God at all. Yes, we plead the blood of Jesus Christ, but the cross is simultaneously a symbol of Christ's pardon, which he gives to sinners, and also his obedience to the Father. And in fact, when you look at the prayer life of Jesus from John 13 through 17, everything is focused on doing the will of the Father. Even if the cross had not performed an atonement, Christ should have still wanted to go because it was the Father's will. And it was so fitting that the Father chose to make him be a penalty for sin, but that is not disconnected from the Father's will for Christ. And so we're going to see today how what God does after this baptism of water and, and a receiving of the Spirit and the voice from heaven, which we looked at for the last two weeks, how that is how God leads him up into the wilderness to demonstrate how he is the real, true Israelite, the only one to complete the law. So we're going to look at four elements. First is this understanding of Jesus being led by the Spirit. 
And we won't spend a lot of time looking at applications, but uh, I do want to encourage you that uh, spiritual warfare is foreordained and you are protected in it. We're going to talk very briefly about that. We're going to look at the core temptation of Satan. Uh, the root of all these temptations is actually not the external thing that Satan commands Christ to do, but rather the core temptation before we get to that temptation. So you might think of it as the root temptation versus the fruit temptation. That might be a helpful image for you. Then I want to look at Jesus as the great light, displaying his wonder to the people of Galilee, and then also his encounters in the land of Syria. Now, if you are unfamiliar, Syria is geographically next to Israel. And in fact, during the time of David, Israel controlled a large portion of land that was in Syria, uh, what, what, would, what would at this time and even today be called Syria. And then finally, we're going to look at Jesus Christ as the miracle worker and how his action in revela- his revelation of himself as the powerful one, as the miracle one, the one who performs signs and wonders, gives us great and wonderful, precious promises for today. So the first thing I want to look at is this idea that Jesus was led by the Spirit of God. I'm going to summarize the baptism event. John the Baptist is baptizing, and he was told by the Father that the one upon whom you see the Spirit of God descend and remain, it is he who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus Christ was testified publicly by John the Baptist, who said at the banks of the Jordan, as Jesus was walking by that day, he said and announced to all his hearers, all who had been baptized and were still there at the Jordan, all who were waiting to be baptized. It says all Judea, all of Jerusalem, the entire region had come out to him. And on that day, he publicly declared, as he said of Jesus Christ, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so already in this season of Epiphany, we've seen how Jesus Christ is called the Son of God that voice that comes from heaven at his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. John publicly testified that he is the lamb of God, the offering which God himself is putting forward to deal with sin. And then also John testifies that he is the one who is the baptizer in the spirit. And today we are going to see at this moment by the leading of the spirit that he is not only the son of God, not only the lamb of God, not only the baptizer in the spirit, but he is the only true Israelite to complete the law and defeat every temptation of evil. And so the Spirit leads him up into the wilderness, and this is done as a sign by God for the benefit of the people. And in fact, I am convinced that what we see in John 5, where Jesus says, I only do what I see my Father doing, and the Spirit's leading in this specific verse tells us that this is a Trinitarian action. That whenever God acts in history, he acts Father, Son, and Spirit in unison and in concert, in harmony. The Son never does something against the Father's will or against or away from the Spirit's leading. And that's exactly what we're going to see in one of these temptations. This all is done for God to show a covenant mercy to his people. You see, the people of Israel had their identity in the Exodus. For example, in our country, our national identity is founded on the pilgrims 
and the colonists of Jamestown, and then the American Revolution. Those are touchstones. You might call them sacred cows, if you will. They're things which you ought not to speak against publicly because they comprise our national identity as a people who desired at least at first to come and be a city on a hill. The Puritans, as they were coming to this country, sought to establish a Christian civilization. Now, there's mixture from the beginning. There's no denying that there were people who were not seeking the same ends. There always is a mixture, even in the church today. And yet, they desired to bring about a witness of a new Jerusalem, if you will. And if you read their writings, they use these phrases that show some of their mindset. Well, in a very similar way, just as America, even though we are a young country, we have a national identity as our origin story. Also, the people of Israel have everything in their national identity tied up with what God did in the Exodus. But the problem is that even at the Exodus, a mixed multitude come up from Egypt who aren't Israelites, who have no desire to worship Yahweh. And even if they did, the rest of the people, as soon as Moses is gone for too long, start worshiping a golden calf. That Aaron, who will be the head of the priesthood, declared publicly saying, this is the God which led you up from Egypt. You see, in the origin story of the people of Israel, there constantly is a knowledge of iniquity that there was a national sin accomplished in the wilderness, that they were warring against God's leading, even while enjoying the benefits of the deliverance. And so this is showing the sinfulness of sin, even though you took the Israelite out of Egypt, Egypt and her idolatries were still deeply rooted in the heart's of the Hebrews. And so God is, through Jesus Christ, showing a covenant mercy to the people of God by saying that no longer will your identity be rooted in my deliverance from Egypt and your simultaneous iniquity, but now I'm going to bring about a greater exodus through a greater servant, greater than Moses, who is going to be the true Israelite who will not sin or fall away in the wilderness. This is all of what the New Testament is talking about. After the Exodus, after God leads his people up, it says that he presented to them or sent to them to lead them a pillar of cloud by day. That is, they could see a smoke of cloud, and then at night it would look or appear as a pillar of fire by night. And this was the cloud and fire which they followed through the wilderness. In the scriptures, cloud and fire are always symbolic of the Holy Spirit's presence. After the ordination of the temple, Solomon prays to God. They offer huge numbers of sacrifices. And after he had prayed, the entire temple was filled with smoke and glory, such that no one could even stand to minister. There's always a visibility of the Holy Spirit's activity in the Old Testament, and oftentimes it is seen as a cloud or by fire. Likewise, in this account, Jesus See, uh, John the Baptist at least sees the dove descend and remain upon Christ bodily. Paul identifies this exact thought and he makes a connection in 1 Corinthians 10 and he tells the Corinthians about this story and he uses it and connects it to baptism. 
He says that all of our fathers, that is our spiritual fathers, again, he's writing to Corinthians, which were both Jews and Greeks, presenting that they had become one people, the new Israel of God, as Galatians 6 says, the Israel of God, those people of God who were joined together in Christ after Christ removed the uh, dividing wall from them, or from among them, that all our fathers passed through the sea and that they were baptized into Moses, that is, they were brought into Moses, in the sea and in the cloud. And so Paul identifies these two events, that the people of Israel, as they were leaving Egypt, passed through the Red Sea, went into the wilderness, and then passed through the Jordan to come into the land. He identified it as a baptism, if you will. Moses took them through the Red Sea, then Moses died as a symbol of that last generation falling away because they were unwilling to believe the promises of God and enter the land. And then after Moses passes away, Joshua takes them through the Jordan and they enter the land. Both of those generations left Egypt and entered the land by passing through the waters. And so Jesus Christ at his baptism is again being baptized in the Jordan. Though these people had communion with God in these things, they did not survive the wilderness because they were rebellious in their hearts and they fell by the way. That is to say, if you wish, that there was a pile or a breadcrumb of bodies falling away from the Israelites because of their own rebellions and sins. This is what is showing us the nature of sin, that sin cannot stand to be in the presence of God, and that God himself cannot tolerate or even indeed look upon sin. And yet, this is not the final chapter in God's encounters. In verse 1, it says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. Reading this in context, we see that this is immediately after the baptism of Jesus. Just as the Israelites passed through the Red Sea and then were led by the cloud and fire, so also Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan, the very same river that they went through to enter the land. But instead of entering the land, Jesus is heading to the wilderness. It is kind of like Jesus is bearing the exile of the sins of the people. Whenever you move from the Jordan into the promised land, that's victory, that's blessing, that's the obedience and graciousness of God. But whenever you leave through exile, you leave from Israel through the Jordan into the wilderness, into Babylon, into Assyria, etc. And so Jesus Christ is being sent off into the wilderness to go to the very same place of their failure, but here he will not fail. Indeed, he will succeed by the power of God. Verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, I don't know about you. I would be hungry after fasting for four hours, and yet Jesus is experiencing something very significant in the history of the people of God. Christ, after passing through the waters, enters into the wilderness to be tested, and that testing was foreordained by God. He triumphs in the very place of Israel's failure. And this number 40 is deeply significant, and it's significant for this reason, because Jesus comes to bear the sin of his people. You see, the Israelites were judged and they were judged with 40 days of, or sorry, 40 years, excuse me, 40 years of wandering. And yet Jesus had never done anything wrong, but before he can even be tested, he experiences 40 days of waiting. 
You see, they had no time before they rebelled. They rebelled almost instantaneously. Indeed, as they were walking out, just like, just like Lot and his wife, as they're leaving the town, Lot's wife turns to Sodom and desires to go back. Even knowing that the city will be destroyed, she desires to go back. And yet here at the deliverance of Israel from the uh, Egyptians, it is clear that in their hearts they already desired to go back. And indeed, many times they say, oh, that we were in Egypt where they had leeks. You know what a leek is? It's basically a green onion. And they desired green onion stew over and against manna and quail. I don't know about you, I would choose the quail every time. Quail is delicious. Uh, I would not want to go back to the flesh pots. They, they, it's basically boiled meat in, in Egypt. And so the people have a mixture, and yet Jesus Christ is showing a greater victory. They were tempted in the moment after they left Egypt, and they sinned immediately, and yet Jesus is only tested after his suffering. You see, they experienced a condemnation, a guilt, a judgment of 40 years so that that generation would die off, and Jesus experiences 40 days, and then after that suffering is tested. The Father was absolutely pleased to demonstrate his love through testing. Hebrews 2 says that he learned obedience. And he encountered these things through suffering. The Spirit, therefore, delights to lead the Son in what he hears of the Father's command. And so we see God acting here in unison and in harmony, leading Jesus Christ up to be tested. You see, it's so important that we understand that this was God's ordination, that it was God's command. Because when we face spiritual trials, we face them as if the devil has in engaged upon this wonderful campaign and scheme that God is unaware of, that we are caught surprised by, and that we cannot overcome. Now, that the temptation is more than we can bear. You see, the temptation, as Jesus demonstrates, is never more than we can bear. And in fact, God's word says that whenever we are tempted, there is always a means of escape. Always a means of escape. Not only is your temptation ordained, that is, God sees it and is sovereignly given to you so that he would prove as gold is refined, he would demonstrate the work of grace that he's doing in you, and there is always a means of escape. Christ the Son, being uniquely chosen by his Father and filled with the Spirit, delights in obeying, and he desires to go and give evidence of his obedience and full completion of the law. This is really the capstone on a life lived in obscurity, and it's fitting that these temptations actually take place in secret, because indeed most of our temptations take place in secret, don't they? What you are before God is what you are in secret. I believe it was, uh, oh, I can't, I, can't, I can't remember his name. Uh, but anyway, his, uh, yeah, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who said that uh, a pastor is only as significant as he is in prayer. Isn't that an interesting idea? That, that what really is the mark of the faithfulness of a disciple of Christ or a son or daughter of God is what they are in secret. You see, it's not even clear from the text, 
Of course, obviously, Jesus cannot sin, but he also chooses not to sin, being aided by the Spirit. And it would be indeed impossible for the plan of God to go astray or go off course. But it's not even clear, really, to me, whether or not his failure in the wilderness would have been, you know, presented or publicized. Now, this is clear speculation, but what I have to understand here about this passage is that Jesus did not let any of that aspect even cloud his judgment for one second. Isn't that so much of how we get down the path of temptation? We give in saying, well, you know, God's not around right now. In fact, I believe it's Tim Keller who says that all forms of sin are a practical atheism. Because what they say is that God doesn't see, God won't judge, I'm, I'm in a secret right now, I'm, I'm hidden, and yet this is all the folly of the devil. That is the core temptation, really, as we're about to see. So, at Jesus' baptism, after the Spirit comes to rest upon him, the Father declares publicly, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And in fact, the, from the first public moment, Christ is desiring to fulfill all righteousness. This is the core of who Jesus is. Really, this is the answer to that question that I brought up earlier. Some people ask me, was it possible for Jesus to sin? Could Jesus have missed the mark? And what I kind of help them explain is that's not a very good question because it is attacking the very nature of who Christ is. He is, by definition, the one who desires to do the will of the Father. Just as the, the common question from atheists or skeptics say, you know, could God ever do evil? No, because that is against his nature. He always wants to do good. It's not that it's impossible for God to do evil. It's impossible for God to want to do evil. And any man that, who could even suggest such a thing to God should be instantly squashed. The point is this, that Jesus, yes, it, he did go through real suffering. Yes, he did go through real temptation, but he's being shown in this very passage as the one who loves his father. And he loves his father with a pure love, a love that is rooted in the scriptures, rooted in the truth of God. Each of these temptations, therefore, of Jesus have a common core temptation, that is a, a kernel, which if, if Jesus misses the kernel, he will obviously fall prey to the temptation. And the kernel, Jesus discerns and attacks. Just as the serpent of old deceived Adam and Eve with the words, indeed has God said, so also Satan, the tempter, in this very passage called the devil, he attempts to deceive Jesus by getting him to doubt something. You see, the temptation is really not to make the bread or to throw himself down from the temple or to worship. Indeed, the proposition of worshiping the devil is quite absurd because Jesus has spiritual discernment and there's nothing desirable in the devil to worship. And so what is the real temptation? If that's not an enticing temptation, indeed, the kernel of the temptation was to doubt the word of the father that was spoken over him. You see, it had been at least 40 days since he had last heard publicly, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Just like it's sometimes easy to miss the passage of time, it's also sometimes easy to dismiss the passage of time. 
Jesus Christ is a real human being and had suffered for 40 consecutive days of hunger and of being away from the fellowship of friends, being in the wilderness in a place that was desolate, in a place that was not beautiful, in a place that was hard to live in. And yet, each of these temptations he overcomes by the word of God. Each of these temptations is a perversion of some valid thing. We're going to see that real, real briefly. Uh, not that I'm suggesting worshiping the devil is a valid thing, but rather what we'll, we'll get there. So just hold that idea. Verse three, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Is it right for Jesus to eat food? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So is the temptation the making of bread? No. What is the temptation? The kernel of the temptation is to doubt his identity and rooted in the Father. You see, Jesus is the Son of God in that he is the Son of the Father. And his identity comes from his union to the Father and his relationship to the Father. The kernel temptation is not to make food. And indeed, this is a perversion of a valid thing that, will, that Jesus actually will do. Not that he commands stones to become bread, but rather he takes bread and multiplies it. In fact, at another place, he says that, you know, I could raise up worshipers from these stones, children of Abraham from stones. See, the temptation, the kernel of the temptation is to doubt his union to God by the Spirit, to doubt his understanding of the fatherly, kind heart and disposition of God's leading over his life. Jesus conquers this in verse 4. It says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out from the mouth of God. You see, Jesus Christ is being nourished in his soul. He is finding true human delight and sustenance from that which comes from the Father's voice. See, this is not downplaying the importance of physical food. If Jesus never ate after this moment, he would have died. Jesus is a real human being. And yet what he says in this moment is that the more important sustenance, although the, the human frame is significant and important, the more important sustenance is that which comes from the Father's voice. I don't eat pizza for like a, you know, a week and then I want it all the time. In fact, if you've ever fasted, you might have had this experience. The first two or three days of fasting, you have wonderful dreams of large marshmallows and pizzas and popcorn buckets without end because your, your frame is crying out for something that it wants. Jesus says, my, my food is the words from the Father. And in another place, Jesus says, I have food that you do not know of, that you can't comprehend of, for my food is to do the will of my Father. See, so many Christians want to receive the word, but they never want to add to the word with obedience. Jesus is saying, my food is that which proceeds from the Father, and then my food is to do the will of the Father. Jesus Christ is obeying his father in these temptations. He's accomplishing the word. You see, Jesus was the one who in another wilderness was to command bread to multiply. His goal eventually was to give evidence to the people of his power over the natural world by multiplying bread. 
And yet at this moment, it would have been a perversion of Christ's destiny to do so at the command of Satan to prove his identity, that he really was the Son of God. Each of these core temptations is centered around doubting his position as a son and rejecting the leadership by the Spirit and, the, and trusting in the will of the Father. That really is the central temptation of Jesus' life, and really, indeed, the central temptation of all sins. When we get to the Garden of Gethsemane, of course, that same temptation is present, that he is tempted in those very moments to doubt the goodness of the will of the Father, saying, even indeed, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but not as I will, but as thy will. And that really is the heart of Jesus Christ's obedience. Verse 5, it says that the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And then he quotes some passages of scripture. Jesus says, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. See, this is the core temptation. The core temptation is to take matters into his own hand, to reject the leading of the spirit, to reject the timetable of the father. It's not a very good temptation. If you asked me, if you took me to the, the bank towers downtown and we went up to the roof and you said, you know, throw yourself down from here, that wouldn't be enticing at all. What is the temptation, therefore? The temptation is to take matters into his own hand, to cause God to be forced to obey him rather than for him to obey the Father's uh, will and the Spirit's leading. Christ triumphs over each of them, these temptations, therefore, by embracing the humility that is fitting for a man who walks before God. Jesus Christ is divine, and yet in his earthly incarnation, he takes on a humility that is fitting for men. See, Jesus Christ, though he is divine, walks in humility, for it was fitting that he may be made like his brothers in all respects. It was one of our central ideas when we studied the book of Hebrews, that Jesus Christ has a physical body, is susceptible to common ailments like colds and sicknesses, and has to eat food and use the restroom and stubs his toe. Jesus Christ was like one of us. And part of becoming one of us is walking in the humility that is fitting for a man as one who walks before God in obedience. Jesus Christ does not force God's hand. He does not put God to the test. Finally, look at the last temptation. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Verse 9, he says, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. What's so interesting to me about this temptation, <clears throat> excuse me, is that many Christians think that it was in the power of the devil to do this. They assume because it's in scripture that the devil was telling the truth and that Matthew's not simply recording what the devil said. Now, is the devil the god of this age? Little g god of this age? Yes. Has the devil blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they should not believe in the gospel? Yes. But it, is it in the devil's power to convert a soul to worship Jesus Christ? No. And is this temptation a valid temptation? Absolutely. See, many Christians think, because they do not understand certain portions of Scripture in the right light, that this temptation is something that was more enticing to Jesus than obeying the will of the Father. 
but it's actually the case that Christ would one day receive all the kingdoms of the earth and that they would all come and worship him. See, Jesus is going to receive them, but he will receive them through one particular way, by obeying the Father's will. What is the temptation, therefore? The temptation is receiving glory without going to the cross. That is always part of the temptations that face you, especially with promotions or advancement in life or favor with men or popularity among other human beings. Always the temptation of the devil is glory without going through a cross, glory without taking up your cross and suffering like Christ suffers. Verse 10, he says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. This, the tempter knows that, uh, and shows him a false promise of the tribes of the earth coming to worship him. It is neither in the devil's power, nor would it be fitting for Jesus to worship him, nor is there anything worshipful in Satan, but rather just darkness and perversion and the twisting of good things. And so Jesus finds this idea, worshiping Satan, not enticing, but receiving the kingdoms of the earth enticing, because indeed that is, that is his glory. The scriptures are so full of passages that say things like, all the nations will come and stream to the mountain of God, that the coastlands even will see the light of God dawning on his people. And of course, we see very clearly in Revelation 4, Revelation 5, that a great multitude surrounds the throne of the Lamb, a great multitude from every tribe and every tongue and every people. And so is the temptation a perversion of a valid thing? Yes, but it is never in the power of the the evil one to deliver sinful men up to the true worship of God. Only the Holy Spirit can perform such a regeneration. Again, the same kernel of temptation is here to doubt the Father's voice and the Father's will and the Father's calling. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says that when Christ was entering the world, he said, I've read in the scroll of your book, you've prepared a body for me. See, Jesus, as he comes into the world, is receiving the obedient call of the Father to offer up his body as a living sacrifice or as a sacrifice poured out to death for the sake of the people. And yet here, the temptation is to doubt the Father's goodness in sending Christ to the cross in order that he would suffer and then receive glory. So, all of these temptations are defeated by Christ with the Word of God. One of the things that's so interesting to me is that Jesus submits himself and demonstrates the word of God as authoritative to him. That is, he is the incarnate word. That is, he is the word spoken by the Father. As John in John 1 says that the word was with God, the word was in the beginning, and the word was God. And yet the incarnate word is not opposed to the scriptural word. And I'm equivocating here. I'm using the same term to talk about two different things. By saying that this Bible is the Word of God, we do not mean that it is the Logos of God. And, it, and we don't mean that it is Father, Son, and Holy Bible, or Father, Spirit, and Holy Bible. The Son is the Son of God, and yet he is called the Logos, the template or the, the ideal of God as God speaks into time. And yet, at the same time, Jesus is presented here as one who loves the Word of God and wars with it. 
You see, later on in the New Testament, we see the word called a sword of the Spirit. And in Revelation 1, we see Jesus, and out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. The, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut between joints and marrow, able to get into the very core of a man's life, a man's heart, his soul even. This is what Jesus is using to defeat the temptations of Satan. And I think it would be fitting for us to examine his pattern, examine his model, and begin to do this. In fact, in the last few weeks, I've encouraged certain people who've come to me with pastoral burdens after I've prayed for them, I've encouraged them, take promises of the word of God, meditate upon them, and in that moment of temptation, bring them forth, call them to mind, say them out loud, dwell on them, because they are your only offensive weapon against the schemes of the enemy. So Jesus is, therefore, the only man who eats every word. He said that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the Father. And we know that Jesus Christ, as the obedient one, is the man who eats every word. He is the only man who does not put God to the test, and he is the only man who has worshipped God alone and served him alone. All other men put God to the test. They tempt God with their persistence and rebellion. They they tempt God with their idolatries. They do not worship God, but rather make idols of their own fashions. And then they test God and do not serve him at all. And so Jesus Christ is seen as this great light. He comes up from the wilderness in power, again led by the Spirit, and begins to publicly teach the kingdom of God has come near. After his triumph over the devil, he goes in power to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, and those identities of who these sons of Jacob were are tied all the way back to when Jacob blessed his son, saying to Zebulun that you will dwell by the sea, and to Naphtali that there will become many uh, uh, productive does that, that will bring forth uh, life. And so this idea that the word of God causes the, the calf to to come forth is so present here that Jesus himself is saying the very words of God as he goes to preach and teach. By Matthew's recording of these glorious facts, we see Jesus as the glorious one, not only spoken of by Moses, not only, one, not only the one prophesied by Daniel, as we saw last week, but also the one prophesied by Isaiah. In verse 13, it says, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be filled, that the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. You see, the understanding of Jesus Christ in his gracious coming in his ministry is not just that he was sinless, not just that he performed an atonement, but that he showed the faithful remnant in God's people who he was. He did not hide himself, he did not teach only privately, but he did these things publicly that all would see his glory, that we could understand what he was revealing about the Father and about himself. They've seen a great light, 
on them a light has dawned. Jesus, as John tells us in John chapter 1, is the only light of men. As he is the light of men, he illumines his countrymen, and he shows them uh, his glory through teaching, healing, and deliverance. Every aspect of life that Jesus encounters was a demonstration of the righteousness of God breaking in on a people that were terrorized by the devil. In his teaching and in his preaching, he removes the yoke and the burden of the Pharisees and sends the disciples out to minister among the people. You see, if you want to think of Jesus' ministry just as an isolated event here in one city or another, he sent out at one point 70 people to go and to minister in every town. And in fact, he said, don't go among the Gentiles, but rather go among the people of Israel, because you will not be able to go to every town until the Son of Man comes. Now, that's not talking about the second coming. That's talking about the judgment coming that took place by the hands of the Romans. This is a little far afield from us, but I assure you, if you wanted to, you could visit every town in Israel. The point was that there was a limited time, and Jesus was giving them a warning, saying, there is a time set for the people of Israel to hear Otherwise, all the woes that I pronounced against the various cities in Matthew and in Luke, all these woes will come. And my desire is that all my faithful sons and daughters, all the sheep that I have in this fold would come to me and they would be preserved and rescued. Jesus does not do these things in a corner, but rather does them in the public square and he does them for everyone to see. He preaches in public and receives all who come to him. One of the things that I love about reading the Gospels and trying to look for the glory of Jesus Christ in the Gospels is this understanding that everyone who comes to him, if they do not follow him, they do not follow him because of their own hardness of heart. Every time someone come, came to Jesus Christ, he always healed them. If you read through the Gospels, there are a few accounts where Jesus does not heal every single person. But for the most part, whenever someone came, whenever someone asked, sometimes he would do it immediately. Sometimes he would put up a little challenge to see if they truly had faith, but he always received those who came to him. What a glorious Savior we have. What a glorious, wonderful aspect of Christ's ministry and love for his fellow men and women, human beings that he knew and were coming to be part of his fold. He always received one. Brothers and sisters, if you are someone who you think you know Christ, but in your heart of hearts, you feel an understanding that there is something lacking between me and Jesus, take courage and come to Christ that he would heal you and deliver you from the yoke and the burden of the oppressor, that he would bring you into his fold. He never casts out someone. If throughout all of the gospels, if anyone did not come and receive of Christ, it was because they took offense at him, or because their heart, like the rich young ruler, was filled with an idol that kept them away. If you have any inkling to come to Christ, and yet doubts fill your heart or mind about whether you would be received, look at Jesus Christ in the scriptures. He never snuffed out a smoldering flax. You know when you blow out a candle, and how there's that little red cherry on the string? on the cord? That's what Jesus is talking about. If anyone has anything going on with even a, a breath of life by the Spirit, he will receive that one. What a wonderful thing. Matthew then summarizes all of these great acts that Jesus is doing, and he summarizes it in a few verses, 
And these are so hard for us to understand, but this is going on for days and days. Jesus is doing this sort of ministry, and they're bringing the entire regions to him. Think about that. Think about how long it would take just to have, just to pray for everyone in the city of Dayton who is sick. It would take days. And yet it says he went through almost all of Syria. Verse 23, he went through all of Galilee. He taught in their synagogues and proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom and healed every disease and every affliction among the people. There is so much doubt today in the modern church as to whether Jesus Christ wants to heal. The scriptures tell us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I was in a a meeting with a bunch of ministers, and some of my favorite things in life are when God shows me something greater than I could ever think of in the moment. And I had this thought, you know, if Jesus cast out demons among the people of God, and not just among the Gentiles, but he cast out demons among the people of God, and, and Jesus hasn't changed, and the nature of human beings hasn't changed, that through 2,000 years of social progress, we haven't really done anything with the spiritual dimension, then the question is, where did the demons go? They hide in the ether because we're so blinded by our unbelief. We think certain things, depression, fears, anxieties, Those are just sins of the flesh. But in reality, we are in an unseen war all around us that is fighting, vying indeed for our affections. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He still wants to heal. You see, Jesus, it says that he healed all of them. He healed every disease. He healed every affliction among the people. It doesn't say that he healed common colds and headaches and those things which could be delivered with Advil and aspirin, and he left amputations and brain tumors and really deep cancers. He left all those to just kind of wait till they die. He healed every disease, every affliction. I'm reminded of a a minister that I really like who actually has a practice in his life that I really commend. And he, every day when he sees either 10.38 a.m. or 10.38 p.m., he says, he takes a moment or two, and he remembers from Acts 10.38, this is Peter telling the people how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. I love verses like this, verses like that, that show that Jesus Christ heals everyone who comes to them. Every sort of disease bows at the name of Jesus. Every sort of affliction can be delivered by the power of Jesus. And yet, for the most part, we do not really understand that aspect of who he is. We know him as the sin deliverer. We know him as the forgiver. We know him as the great teacher. But we do not truly know him in an experiential and true biblical way as the healer. And that is something both in this church and really the churches of the earth, especially the churches of our country, that we ought to repent of and we ought to pursue. See, in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus has some indictments against the church, and the various churches receive these indictments that they have a name that they are alive, but they are dead. We have reputations in the American church that we have some power that we have a name that we are alive, that we're doing well. We have the greatest number of seminary students ever in the history of our country. We have the greatest number of seminaries ever 
in our country. We have the greatest number of churches, even though churches close all the time, ever. We have the greatest number of books printed and sermons on YouTube and what have you. And yet this is completely foreign to us. Now, if you hear me saying that as some grand indictment on the larger body, I'm saying that about me. I'm saying that about us. We have a deep need to pursue Jesus Christ as the healer. Verse 24, so his, frame, his fame spread through all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. There's no qualifiers. There's no descriptions of people who he wouldn't touch or minister to because they didn't have their doctrine figured out yet. Isn't that interesting? I know my doctrine's pretty good. <laughs> That's supposed to be a joke. If there, everyone has problems in their doctrine, if I knew what those problems were, I would <laughs> repent of them, but I don't know where the problems are yet. But I do know this, that that verse doesn't mark my ministry as I know that God wants it to, and as I want to seek for a measure of that breakthrough. What's so interesting to me is people who reject the continuing validity of this sort of ministry. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, he then told his disciples, you are the light of the world. He says that I came to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set the prisoner free, to heal the sick. And then he says to his disciples right before he goes to the cross, as the Father sent me, I send you. So did Jesus send us just to teach about the forgiveness of sins? No. If he was sent by the Father to reveal the Father through signs and wonders, through preaching, through teaching, through acts of mercy to those who were downcast, oppressed, downtrodden, then that is the exact same ministry that his disciples are given. So much of the church is willing to take the moral teachings of Jesus and say there's no doubt in our minds that that applies to me that the Sermon on the Mount applies to me. And yet, they completely miss, there's a disconnect there. They are comfortable with a lack of power. And what I am saying today, and really what I feel our church is being invited to in this season, is to pursue the anointing of the Holy Spirit for ministry. Amen. How God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. God was with him. That is what I want to be on my tombstone. That is what I want to be on our church's legacy, and indeed not a legacy that dies with us, but a legacy that we recover and pass on. It requires great humility. It requires a deep pursuit of God and a humbling of ourselves and a confession of sins and a reception of a, uh, a spirit of humility that doesn't get involved in religious debates that are unprofitable, that doesn't get involved in spheres where we have no authority, but gets involved with those who God sends among us and ministers in the fields where we live and where we work. So this is what Jesus Christ is showing us. Jesus is the miracle. He is one who walked by the Spirit and, loved, and is loved by the Father. What's so interesting is the New Testament says about us that we were adopted in Christ. And so you and I are little s sons of God, and little d, daughters of God, if you will. And we are ones who have been given the Holy Spirit. 
He demonstrated the power of the kingdom through signs and wonders. And in doing this, he travels beyond the people of Israel. We saw earlier in the chapter how he shows the covenantal faithfulness of God, that God will overcome the sins of Israel. But look at what he does now. He moves into the land of Syria, and he begins to show his light to people who are Gentiles, people who the Israelites despise as half-breeds and traitors and mixed Have you ever heard these various terms like a Creole? Have you ever heard that term? It used to be offensive. Now it's just kind of a cultural description. But even in our own country, there's this stigma of black people and white people being in the same church. And as I look out among us, I think that's a sign of God's grace here. But also there's this stigma, well, if they go to the same churches, they can't marry. And indeed, there was a time, look at the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, where God prohibited the Israelites from doing that. But it wasn't because of a racial thing. It was because of a spiritual idolatry issue. We look at the life of Solomon, and he was taken down because he had multiplied his concubines, and his love for them drew his heart away after their gods, and not wishing to offend them. That's not at all the same as understanding this idea of what Jesus Christ has done in breaking down the dividing wall. He shows that the gospel will, after his death, go to all the nations by himself moving beyond Israel, going into Syria, and shining as a light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We ask you that you would convict us of our deep need for his ministry and his teaching and his power We thank you, Lord, that you gave him all authority after he was raised from the dead, having fully completed your will, that he ascended to your right hand and is still there making petition for the saints. And indeed, at the day of Pentecost and every day since, he has been pouring his spirit out upon his church. God, we ask you for a mighty baptism of fire, that you would deliver us from complacency, that you would deliver us from comfortability with powerless Christianity, that we would not only seek to kill sin in us through our pursuit of you in spiritual disciplines, but that we would also wish to be, as 1 John says, that the Son of God appeared, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Lord, we ask you that you would bring our church into a season of the pursuit of you in power that you would give us a deep hunger and a compassion for the neighborhoods in this city and for the people who are trapped in bondage and in darkness. We pray, Lord, that you would form in us a a heart that looks like your son's heart, that we would not only have compassion, but that we would have power to deal with the problems. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.